Well, welcome everybody to Volume 20, Dropping Keys Podcast. Yes, Volume 20 of conversations with real people living real lives to glean their insights and keys to life, leadership, love, and whatever else we get into. I'm Joel Morgan, your host, and I'm the head of Key Exploration. Well, why Dropping Keys? In a few moments, you'll hear me read a poem by Hafez, who was a 15th century mystic and poet, and that is the inspiration and the centerpiece for this podcast. Why me? Well, I like to instigate and facilitate important conversations with individuals and organizations to clarify where they are and help them move forward. I like to help them in transition. I like to help them get from here to let's freaking go. I'm a certified coach and facilitator, an inspirational speaker, and a seeker of keys to help myself and others live lives of meaning and purpose. Now, why did I say real people in real life? Well, I've listened to all the podcasts, as you maybe have, but uh, I'm not really attracted to those quote-unquote superstars anymore. I've heard enough from them. I mean, they're wonderful people, and they've done amazing things and continue to do the same, but I wanted to hear from people who you may not have heard of, who are really in the arena, giving their heart and their soul to work, family, community. I wanted to dig deep with those people to hear those stories. Maybe those who haven't don't get the big headlines or, or have their praises sung from on high yet. I didn't hear those voices out there, really, and I wanted to bring them to you. And selfishly, I wanted an excuse to ask great questions and plumb the depth of what gives others life and releases them from the cages in which they find themselves. So if you enjoy what you hear and you've been enjoying what you hear, I would love to have you support this podcast by going to joelmorgan.com backslash pay so we can stay commercial free, except this one, of course. All right. Today, my Dropping Keys co-conspirator is Justin Foster. He may be the biggest guest I've had on. And I mean that. I think he's like 6'3". I think he said on one upon another podcast, like 240. So he could look eye to eye with my other podcast co-conspirator, um, Dr. John Bibbs. And I'd love to see them, um, you know, be together in the same room. Two big people, big, wonderful personalities, just, just having a great time and conversation. Maybe we'll arrange that sometime. Justin is driven by the belief that leadership begins in the heart. He's the co-founder of an intrinsic branding firm called Root and River, as well as a speaker, a writer, a poet, and a mentor. Along a journey that began on a cattle ranch in eastern Oregon, Justin has spent two decades providing unconventional and often, as he calls it, heretical brand strategy coaching to executives and founders of every sector and industry. In his coaching, writing, and speaking, he seeks to inspire you to go inward, embrace the mystery and show the world who you truly are. He lives in Austin, Texas with his partner and their son, and also has two grown children and a grandson. He loves deep conversations, great coffee, good bourbon, and real country music. So you can already tell that we're going to have a wonderful conversation. Justin, I'm going to share with you, our people won't be able to see this, of course, but I'm going to share with you an image of dropping keys and I'm going to read it to you. And then after we're, after I've read it to you, I invite you to just begin with whatever comes to mind. The small man builds cages for everyone he knows while the sage who has to duck his head when the moon is low, keeps dropping keys all night long for the beautiful rowdy prisoner. 
Well, first of all, I love Hafiz's stuff. Um, I think what speaks to me about this poem, and I followed your instructions, Joel, not to not like over overread it uh, when you sent it. I was familiar with it, but not like, you know, full verse. And, and I think what it represents to me um, is the, the dichotomy of being a human and that we do have a choice between smallness, which feels big to the ego, and or big, uh, smallness of bigness of soul that feels small to the ego. And I feel like um, this choice that we make, and I, and I think in particular of men um, and moving up and down the spectrum of unconscious to conscious masculinity is this daily choice to choose the higher self because that's what the world needs. The world does not need our smaller self. Um, sometimes we do in order to survive. But the world doesn't need our smaller self. The world needs our higher self, and that's where all the good stuff is. And I think this is a process to, I think it's been somewhat mistranslated, but the Apostle Paul's dying daily is the choice. It's more choosing daily of which will I be, the cage builder or the key dropper. And it all, it all like I said, it all goes to level of consciousness, especially from a masculine standpoint. Yeah, I'm really, uh, I'm really uh, interested in the phrase that you dropped here unconscious to conscious masculinity. Mm -hmm. What does that mean for you? And what does that mean for people that you work with? Well, there's, um, I'll use my favorite model for this is David Hawkins's map of consciousness. And folks can Google that there's plenty of pictures of it out there, you can get the book, um, his book. And it's essentially, it's a similar model to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. This is a hierarchy of consciousness. And what's interesting about it is courage is in the middle. It's not the top, it's the middle. And there's uh, the small self is, this is my analysis, the smaller self, the, the cage builder is below the courage line. And below the courage line are things like comparison, control, um, avarice, um, well, basically the seven sins, <laughs> if you will is below the line, below the courage line. And that the courage line is the middle is why courage is so rare these days and why courage, most courage you see comes from people that have been oppressed by, this, by a system. It comes from the LGBTQT person that uh, comes out as an LGBTQT Christian, as an example, or it comes as the, um, the, the person of color or the, the rural American that you know, makes it in business. And, you know, all, all of the people that have operated outside of the system have had to have tremendous acts of courage while people within the system generally, you know, as long as you follow the rules, you're fine. Above the courage line is then the, uh, the higher self or more conscious masculinity or femininity too. I think it applies either way, speaking as a man, but that's things like reason is above the line. Wisdom is above the line. Joy uh, uh, sorrow, um, compassion, um, and then at the very top, enlightenment. And the very bottom, interestingly, is shame. And most of the time, what has happened with men is that when the reason they're cage builders is that is out of fear. 
And what has happened with many men is they operate from a place of fear-based power. So they run the system. They own the business. They have the political office. They have the, they, they're the, the leader of the church. They're the dean of this. They're the, you know, the, the patriarch of their home. And it's all designed to have a sense of control, um, of fear. And underneath that fear is shame. And my definition of shame is disconnection from what you're truly worth. I think that's the, you know, shame is the, it, it, shame is the root of fear. Shame is the, that's a lot to, that's a key that you, we could, we could ponder on for, for a good while. Yeah. You so, think about the mech, the things that you construct, you know, the masculine is a constructor. The feminine is a deconstructor in, you know, spiritual terms. Um, and the things that you can construct like cages or bridges or idols, um, the things that you can construct with the motivation to not feel shame. And the reason I say shame is the root of fear is that fear isn't really optional. Fear is part of the human experience. It's part of our actual, you know, neuro, neuro, um, neuro wiring because it keeps us alive. Um, and, but shame is optional. And, but I think of all of the, you know, I think of the, think of, look at all the horrible things that happen in the world. And it's easy to find a list of those. It's hard to be optimistic sometimes, but look at the horrific thing that happened in Buffalo. At the root of that is shame. And it, and, and with men in particular, and this seems to be white men, but I don't know if it's race specific, but just as a data point, it seems to be that men and shit that have that are fueled by shame inevitably bring violence which is why we need alpha conscious alpha men to fight them we need men that are conscious and and highly conscious people that are willing to kick some ass when necessary that know how to handle their shit in a crisis but above the courage line because that's the that's the counter to unconscious men given power, given weapons of destruction and going out and harming people. The counter to that is the conscious man that can fight those people, the David, the Davids of the world, who was a flawed man in many ways, but he was a conscious man. I'd love to go back a little bit in, in, in your own history. And I'd love to, I'd love to hear based on the, you know, based on the poem, like who, who were some of the key droppers for you or what were some of the keys early on that began to unlock cages that you found yourself? That's a great question, Joel. Give me the chills. Um, I think the first key, uh, key dropper was my grandmother, uh, Maxine Foster, um, passed about 10 years ago. Um, the kind of the epitome of femininity and strength and tiny, you know, she reminds me of that Shakespeare quote, uh, although she is small, she is fierce. Um, she was like five feet tall, um, a, a breast cancer survivor, double mastectomy, um, city girl that married a, a rancher. Um, and she was the only adult for about 15 years that I trusted. Um, and she was kind and always affirming. Um, and it was kind of confusing. I was raised in a fundamentalist church, which is, you know, a, that's a, a deep, a stagnant pool of resentment and fear um, with a surface of warm and nice. And my grandmother was a Methodist and 
Methodists are generally cool people, kind of like Presbyterians. They're generally cool people. Um, not a lot of asshole Methodists. Um, but, or, uh, but, and so it was a kind of a conflict because I had this home life, this deeply fundamentalist, you know, and violent embedding of ideas. And then my grandmother, a Methodist who loved God and Jesus and had the cross stitch of Jesus saves and all that stuff, but was just loving. She was a loving person. Um, the second person this is a longer story for another time, but the second person was a man named John Sterling, who was a minister in the church. And that church had been around in the U.S. since the late 90, 1890s and had slowly over the decades of the 60s, 70s, and 80s driven out all the mystics and, and basically became a very legalistic um literal, literal, like literalists of the Bible, um, very insular. And John, or Johnny, as his friends called him, was a mystic within that. And he was, you know, he he didn't follow the, the rules of fundamentalism. He was very much a follower of Jesus, not a follower of the Bible, which are two very different things. And um, they'll take you to two very different places. And um he uh, he was a minister assigned to our area for a while and was the first non-relative that I trusted. And he was uh, a thoughtful, inquisitive man. And over the years at times um, of massive transformation and change, he has appeared to me in dreams and spoke with me. Um, and I have a story about the book, Dog Hammarskjöld, um, who was the second secretary general of the UN, has a book called Markings. Yeah. I have a story about that. I'll tell you another time. That is the connection to John that I think about really every day. Mm. Um, and then my former, my former wife, Lena, um, you know, she was, um, she was say she was, she is, uh, but at the, uh, you know, she, I met her when I was 18 and we got married when I was 18. Um, and she was 19. Um, she was safe. She was sweet. She was un waveringly un, I never doubted her love um, and she was definitely a key dropper in the sense of um, sp spiritual and psychological safety yeah definitely and then you know there's been many others but my sons and my grandson and my stepson all key droppers every time I talk to them my my I, 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 my my grandson Fiverr Fiverr Lincoln Foster was born uh, about just just over a month before I would turn fifty, and you know I'm turning fifty, I'm becoming a grandfather, and I'm like, oh man, am I old? My marriage was ending. It's like I'm never gonna have sex again. I'm never gonna, you know, I'm uh, this is it. I'm gonna fade into you know grandpa oblivion. And I, you know, was during COVID, and so I didn't get to see him when he was born or at the hospital. So it wasn't until they got home. And I remember, and I, and I have a, a video of this. Lena took a shot a video of this of me holding him. And there was this moment where I felt my old self fall away. And it was the end of the last 50 years and the beginning of the next 50 years. Now, I don't know if I'm going to live for another 50 years, but that feeling is it, it. And I often say that it's like un, it unlocked something, it like a new door. Mm. so and then recently my partner virginia who is singularly the most interesting imp impressive 
beautiful person I've ever known. And she's, some people come at you with a skeleton key that opens everything, but she's got very specific keys. It's like this, this little thing, this little door mm-hmm. to some part of me. And always delivered with my favorite way to be communicated with in a relationship is with directness and um, honesty. And as cliched as it sounds, I am a significantly better man because of her key. Yeah, the, the thread the thread that I heard in the midst of, of all of that, which won't be a surprise to you, is the word love. Right. So how would you describe how love manifest, manifests itself in a way that, that, or that embodies trust, that embodies all of those things that you were, you were talking about, that kind, affirming, direct, you know, opening up, unlocking. How, how might you talk about love in the midst well, of that? Well, first of all, I don't believe love is a feeling. Um, love is one of the, um, as a transcendent property um, that, you know, are things basically that, that come from a place of things like what God feels, let's just say, or, or, or knows. And, you know, John, the, the, the John said, God is love. Um, and I believe that. Um, and so it's a transcendent thing like wisdom or joy. Those are transcendent. There's no, they're not really feelings. They're like ways of experiencing. Um, and to me, love, um, Love is the best way I describe love is from actually an old football coach at a coaching conference back when I coached, I coached football for 15 years mm. and he was right out of casting central. You know, he had the shorts that were way too tight and the big belly and the, and the, and the beard and the polyester you know, shorts, man. Who can forget yeah, polyester those shorts with the polo double, shirt. double, double snap buttons at the yeah. top, big revealing waistband. Way, Revealing way too much of himself. Oh my um, gosh, yeah. And he gets up to the podium and he puts his big ham-like hands on the podium and he pounds his fist and he goes, gentlemen, we are here to love these kids. And I was like, all right, I'm paying attention. And he goes, love is 100% commitment to another person's well-being. Mm-hmm. And that still remains my favorite definition of love. And there's no, there's no guile in it. I think that's why it produces trust and, and acceptance. And there's no guile in it. There's no strings attached. There's, that's why I say it's not a feeling because feelings can be very much on a spectrum. Love is not on a spectrum. And you know, we sometimes say unconditional love. Love is unconditional. Anything else that's conditional is not love. It doesn't, it's not necessarily bad, but it's not love. Um, and I really think that, you know, Maslow at the Maslow's hierarchy was self-actualization um, David Hawkins is top of the hierarchy is enlightenment, but I really do believe that the height of the human experience that we can have is love mm. because love reorders what you think is important. You think about the power of that. It reorganizes what you think is important. It, and love is like a, a scale that tells you the truth about your priorities and your behaviors. That's why I say often, especially to my friends that tend to be more in the right-wing Christian spectrum, that your love is, love is the evidence of your belief. And so if what you believe does not produce love, then you don't believe what you think you say you believe. They don't really like to hear that, but I'm all right with that. <laughs> <laughs> 
which goes back to directness. Yes. What do you, what, why does that engender uh, such heartfelt desire for it and, and the, the need in you to convey that to others? Well, I mean, from a utilitarian standpoint, it's just more efficient. Um, you know, I've learned to be um, more gentle with the way that, so gentle directness. Um, sometimes I can be very blunt and I'm, I try to be kindly direct which is a conscious choice because it's not my natural state. Um, uh, and, but I like directness in addition to it being more, much more efficient way to communicate. It is a, it is an indicator of trust mm. and it's two kinds of trust. If you can be direct with me, it means you trust my ability to receive it, but more importantly, you trust your ability to deliver it without shrinking back or being apologetic. And I admire people that are grounded in their own sense of worth. Um, and that's why you see in elite organizations, you know, sports teams or the Navy SEALs or, you know, the, you know people that are groups of people that are operating at the elite, the most elite level are all very direct. There's no permission based. In fact, in the Navy SEALs, the, if you don't, you don't wait for your, 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 your platoon leader or your company, your, your, your commander to come and tell you what to do. You say, here's what I'm going to do. And your commander has to say, no, I don't want you to do that. Mm. And so it's not permission-based. Um, and I admire that. I think it takes an elite thinker and an elite feeler to be direct mm. and receive directness. Now I know that Based off of your someone's wiring, maybe directness isn't good. Um, I understand too now more related to trauma responses and directness. Um, you know, I, I think the word trigger is overused, but still a real thing. Um, and so that's why I've uh, I look at my intention. You know, am I trying to make a point? Is it about me? Is, is it I'm trying to win an argument? And you know, I gravitate, I'm an eight in the Enneagram, I gravitate and I, and I got ADHD, so I have a dopamine shortage and the an aggressive way about going out going about fulfilling the dopamine deficit mm. <laughs> remind me what remind me what the eight is in any area is the challenger okay the challenger okay yeah the fighter the warrior yeah that doesn't describe you at all <laughs> <laughs> yeah not at all yeah not at all not i'm a pacifist all. yeah yeah, no, and I love I, I love uh, in another podcast that you were on the driven I think it's called the driven podcast or or something to that effect. Um, you were you were saying like you know um, I'm big enough that I can say some things and 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 in in some particular situations yeah. and I'm I, I'm physically dominating enough that I can say these things um, yeah. because some people can't yeah, because right. it's you know whatever yeah. and I, I thought that was just that's an interesting thing and so that that does I've often thought you know there there are people who can get away with being more direct in certain situations because they are able to physically hold their ground in a different way I, I think we all have that ability to hold that ground but but just ha we all have to do it differently and I love what you said about intention. One of the things I'm working on is um, sort of a teaching, not a, yeah, teaching a course, a thing around, um, you know, it's called Stop Living Scared. Uh, in a podcast with a dear friend of mine, uh, Tom, he talked about it's e how, how it's so much easier to live scared. And, and I just, I really agree with that. And, and for me, maybe the first step in, in stopping in, in 
not living scared is to just stop stop but one of those the t in that is totally honest which comes with directness like yeah i'm totally honest with myself and i seek to be as completely honest with other people as i as the situation allows with you know again with intention i like that i like that mm-hmm. word um a lot i say to my kids all the time like well we, we, we well when they were kids we'd be watching a sitcom and i'd be like <clears throat> what's going on here? And they'd be like, they're not being honest with each other. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, it works great for sitcoms because it creates conflict and tension. Right. I said, it doesn't work great for life. That's right. Uh, anyway, that's, that is, that's a fun one that, that I have. So, so as you think back, as you think back on things and, and you just think about where you are now, and I know, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of water under the bridge, you know, for all of us who've, who've gotten to this, you know, to the fifties, um, and, and, and you and I share some, some similar things that have happened in our lives in terms of a previous marriage and, and, and some of that, but what were some, what were some keys that opened some cages for you maybe before that at some point in time, you had to be like, you know what, I got to let this key go. This isn't helpful anymore. Well, I think, um, a couple of those come to mind. One is, is I, in 2011, or no, yeah, late 2010, I had a, I was a mental breakdown. I, I, I just couldn't do it anymore, life. And I wasn't suicidal, but I didn't, I just, I, yeah. And so I, as I came out of it, I picked up a key of resolve, will. I picked up that key and I'm like, I'm going to be the kind of man that I would be proud of. And I did. I got in, in great shape. I started making real money. I um, I started, uh, you know, I, I I increased my profile as a speaker and a coach. But it made me hard. Mm-hmm. And I that was pointed out to me by a number of people that I'd become very hard. And I think I held on to that key for about four years until a spiritual awakening in April of 2014 kind of made me drop the key mm. and the, that the, that the thing was not the, the key was not actually resolve, which is very dualistic, which means it's a temporary tool. You know, you don't dualistic tools or things like, like a, you know, a, like a screwdriver, you don't just carry it around with you everywhere. And a resolve is a tool you pick up and you put down, but I was carrying around it everywhere and I replaced it with power. And I mean, power in the sense of like spiritual power, um, not, not fear-based power. And so that's one. Um, I think another key was compromise. Um, I think that's the right word is in 2016, my former wife, Lena came out. Um, She'd realized that she'd been suppressing her sexuality since she was she knew she was gay when she was 13 and, you know, growing up in a fundamentalist church, the, 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 the you know, that's just not allowed. You know, you, the only right. thing worse than, a, than being gay in a fundamentalist church is being like a Muslim that's had an abortion or something, you know, it's right, like, right. it's, 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 yeah, it's not in jest, but it's really, really cruel yeah. um, what happens to, to people in fundamentalism. It's spiritual abuse. And um, in that process, I, I began to compromise because I wanted, I was terrified of losing my marriage. And so I began to compromise what I wanted and what was, what, what I wanted out of life. And um, I, I tried to, you know, again, resolve meets 
fear and compromise, I tried to make it work. I tried to build, create systems that would make it work, that we could stay married and she could be her and I could be me. And none of it worked, um, thankfully, in hindsight. And I dropped that key. And instead, I, I picked up standards. Standards. Um, and standards are um, non-negotiables related to what you want, what you want out of life. And you have to have some wisdom to go with them because standards can easily drift into expectations or, or delusion. Um, but by dropping the key of compromise, I picked up the key of standards and my life is reflective of that and continues to be because I'm not, I'm not putting that key down. I'm not putting the power key down, not putting the, not putting the, the uh, key of standards down either. So do you have a story of how that, of how you might, like help, help me understand what that means, like practically? Yeah. So I think we need standards in basically three areas. I'll, I'll use David White's three marriages model. Um, we need standards about our relationship with ourself, um, our relationship with others, especially our primary person, um, and then our relationship with our work or career. And standards are what you want out of each of those. The standards you set for yourself, the standards you set for relationships, standards you set for your work. And um, after Lynn and I separated and I went into a very long, dark night of the soul, I had a, I, I told someone that I had met about a year prior that I had feelings for her and it was, they were not reciprocated. Let's just put it that way. And that was devastating. And the end of my marriage and, you know, I'm living alone for the first time in 31 years, something like that. And so I, I've always operated, even before I even knew to use these terms, I operated from this concept of next bold move. Um, so I was a little kid. What's the next bold move? You know, like growing up in a violent fundamentalist home and in the seventh grade entering a talent show as, as boy, George dressed as boy, George. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I next love this move. image already. Yeah. In a small town in Baker, in the Baker city, Oregon. Yeah. And I will give credit to my mom who I love and we've reconciled and we have a beautiful relationship now, but she helped me with my makeup to look like boy George and she didn't have any makeup. She was a fundamentalist that you're not allowed to wear makeup. So she went and bought some makeup and put it and made me, we had this magazine, like a people magazine or something with a picture of boy George. She made the hat. She used red yarn to create the hair. And I went as boy George, but fast forward back to the end of 20, you know, September of 2020 and October of 2020, I, I, the next bold move was to get on the apps and um, so I did that and I went on a couple of I had Zoom, Zoom meetups and then went out to went on a couple of COVID friendly walk around dates. And I was proud of myself for going, but also I'd come back and just cry. It's like, I'm never, I'm going to be alone forever. And, and, but I knew I was going to come I was not going to compromise that. So the opposite of standard is compromise. Mm. After the second meetup, wonderful person, just no chemistry. I came back and I wrote something and I'm happy to share it with your listeners if, you, if they want, um, called the, the Conscious Relationship Manifesto. Mm. And I wrote down my standards and, um, and I shared them with a few friends. And three days later, I met Virginia. 
Now, I don't know how it works. And I kind of think that the law of attraction, the secret is very kind of manipulative bullshit, but there is an alchemic formula or alchemic equation, I should say there. And, and so, and then, then there, then we, I found out, and we, I didn't know this until about six months into my relationship with Virginia, that she had done the same thing, not called a conscious relationship manifesto. It was something related to like an ideal, the ideal partner. And she had written it down in the midst of a uh, toxic relationship with someone and just wrote it down. And then it, so, you know, she was a little ahead of me at actually writing it down, but we, we were what we were each looking for in the sense of standards. And it wasn't about looks even. I mean, she's a phenomenally gorgeous woman and that's great, but it wasn't about looks and it wasn't about even characteristics. It was about their soul. And I think that, I think it's a long answer to your question, Joel, but I think that standards come from what your soul wants, which we go back to what we said about the higher self. It's, what does my higher self expect out of myself, out of my life? You know, eat clean, do things that bring joy, be creative, unbound time, the, the four S's, you know, of sleep, salt, sex, and sunshine, you know, that type of stuff. And then what, do, what does my soul or higher self want out of my partnership, my relationship? And then now in, in, in working on, you know, what my higher self wants out of my work that I do but it's all runs off of standards. Mm. Uh, just, I just, I love that story. I'm a, I'm, I, you know, I think you and I share um, a great bullshit detector um, a, and I share a great disdain for, for lots of things that smack of, I'm going to teach you how to manifest and, and, and the secret yeah. and all of that, because, and I'll, and I'll be real honest. Like I want to, I want to believe that. I really, I really do. I want to believe that if I just think it, it's going to show up, you know, sort of thing, or I keep thinking yeah. it in the, in the right way, but that's, we can have that discussion offline. But, um, <laughs> but I, I love that though, that, that there is, there seems to be to me that some oftentimes as we find clarity about something, as we, again, I'll go back to honesty. I'll call it uh, related honesty. Like we, that something happens, something, something shifts in us. And then maybe we did, I think part of it is we just see things differently. We see people differently. We see opportunities differently. That's just my sort of shorthand way of, of thinking about it. Yeah. There's a new word I learned called hierophany. Hierophany. I think that's how you pronounce it. Would you spell it? H I E R O P H A N Y. Okay. And my loose trend, my loose definition for it is, it, 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 an, an epiphany is a, a flash of insight. Yeah. A hierophany is a change and total change of perspective. Mm. Um, where like, I think of uh, paraphrasing Evelyn Underhill, one of my favorite mystics from the early 1900s. She talked about um, removing the curtains from the doors of perception. Mm. You know, I think that's what, what we're talking about here. What we would also call a revelation. Um and, and, you know, in both cases, but in particular that, that overused business term paradigm shift, but one, it's once you see it, you can't unsee it. You know, you can't, 
and it's way overused, but the red, blue, red pill, blue pill kind of metaphor as well. You know, yeah. major, it's like once you, once you see that, and I really think that's what all sp- great spiritual teachers are trying to do. I mean, I think that's what enlightenment is ultimately. And I think that's what Jesus was teaching in particular was, uh, was that, you know, that's why he said, you know, in the, in a, in a King James-ish way, it, it, he who has eyes to see, let him see. He talked a lot about vision and there was a lot of stories about vision and metaphors related to blindness. And that's because if you can't see it, you're being manipulated usually by your own mind. Well, I was going to say maybe even by our own shame and fear. Yeah. I think that's the primary manipulation. Then just other people take care, take advantage of that. Yeah. 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 Mm. Oh, that's, that's, that's good. I like that. The hierophany. I'm going to have to figure out how to pronounce that exactly, <laughs> but that's, that's good. I like that. A total change in perspective. Cause I think that's, well, it's, it's like, if you, to go back, you, you, I know you love to quote biblical stories. Like it's one of my favorite lines in the Bible is when he came to himself, Yes, which is, you know, the prodigal son is in there yes. with the pigs and, you know, and, and yeah. he's eaten, eaten the, what, you know, the corn cobs or whatever, whatever crap that, that the farmers feeding the pigs because they'll eat whatever. And, and he's, when he came to himself, I just think that that sounds like a hierophany to me. It's like, yes, I think so. Yes, oh. definitely. Or, or Paul's Saul on the road to Damascus. Yeah. You know, that type of thing. Um, I think every one of us, I mean, th- these are these are presented to humanity as some sort of like anointing, you know, like, but I think every one of us could do it. I think it's in every one of us because, you know, Jesus said to be, you know, venerated children because of their kind of uh, ability to forgive and their curiosity and all of these things that are, you know, sort of frowned on and especially more fundamentalist in, uh, doctrines these days. And what, what I think happens is that we, this invitation to see something different begins very early when we realize how much of what we think was given, was, was just, was given to us or, or installed and instilled by someone else. Mm. And my, and I had an amusing, my own little mini epiphany the other day that if you cannot apply critical thinking to your own beliefs, then someone else is controlling you. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I, I did, I've studied with Parker Palmer um, oh, yeah. quite a bit and um, some years ago. And, and one of the things that he talked about was like, we spent, <laughs> we spend the first parts of our life sort of creating this thing called us. And then we spend the rest of our life unraveling it, <laughs> you know? And, and I think what you're, what, you're, what you're saying, which I think is true is like some of that, some of that is we get formed into that first part of whatever us is, you know, that, that first part. And then we spend the rest of the time, hopefully, like you say, applying critical thinking and, and beginning to unravel it to, to really find that deep core. I, to use your words and what you said to, you know, to, to find that courage to, to live above that, the courage line and not just devolve or stay at, stay below that because that's, it feels safer. Yes. Um, yeah, definitely. I, many things and listeners of this podcast would, will know that, you know, my journey and in the, in the, especially in over the past 20 months or so has definitely been, you know, an unraveling, I call it uncovery instead of recovery. Uh, because it really is an uncovering of things for me. And, uh, and, I, and I feel like as you talk about that, again, we can apply words that, 
these are things that, you know, you're, you're uncovering and discovering, you know, and that hierophany is in, in some sense for me, as Underhill says, like, you're taking the curtains off, like it's an uncovering, it's an right. opening up. I, I love that. I love that. So, um, so who, who do you think, like right now, who are you becoming because of everything that you've learned and experienced and all, all the, all the work you're doing and the relationships you have, who are you becoming now? Um, well, the short answer is, I don't know. Um, I'm in, I'm in the kind of my own, like, you know, I talked about the three marriages that, you know, and I, and I, and I know who I am and what I believe. And I know my standards. I know my heart. I know my soul. There's a lot of integration. I've integrated, I think most of my trauma, I've integrated the masculine and the feminine. I've integrated light and dark. I have an incredible partner and great friends, great family. And so now it's around career and, um, I am in this sort of place of not repeating some of the same mistakes I made before, which was trying to force an answer to that question. Um, and I think sometimes it's what I don't want and what I, who I am not. And that's kind of an okay starting point. Um, and so an example for this is, you know, for the last 20 years, I've been a branding guy. And I remember um, I met somebody, the, co- the co-founder of Keller Williams, a giant real estate company based in Austin. And I met, I met him, Mark is his name. And he sits down and he goes, so you're a branding guy. And I cringed. I felt myself go, uh, I mean, yeah, but, <laughs> and I just don't want to say, yeah, but anymore. Um, I'm good at branding. I am the, and I am this, but really what I am more than anything is I am a translator of what your soul wants to say to the world. I'm much more of a sound engineer. Um, I'm much more of a, uh, much more Rick Rubin than anything, you know, the, the, the producer or the record, you know, legendary mm-hmm. record producer. Um, and so how I get to do that, I don't really care. It could be within coaching someone through a life transition, or it could be a, a founder or a head of marketing that is so frustrated that they can't communicate who they really are. It's, it's not about the thing that we call it. It's about the output, which is the confidence to express who you really are to the world, because we need more of that. Um, I also know that relationships are at the top of my priority hierarchy now. Um, I think I, I, I think I thought they were, but you know, when you're in survival mode, scrapping what I call raccoon mode, you know, yeah, you want to take care of your family and all that. And I did that, but I, I often did it at the expense of the relationship. I think I missed a lot of things with my boys when they were younger, because I was not just, I was working hard. It wasn't that kind of store only. It was just, I was in survival mode and you, in, and in a lot of ways, spiritually, financially, <laughs> emotionally, survival mode. And I'm not, I'm not that, I'm not there anymore. Um, I kind of wonder how I'm going to get paid, you know. But I, I'm not, I'm not afraid um, about that. Um, and so relationships are important. Um, unbound time is priceless. To not have a start and end point to something is, I, I mean, I can't think. I, I, I would spend. I would trade a significant amount of perceived financial security for more unbound time. 
because we all have time. We all have basically the same 24 hours. It's just how bound is it? Yeah. Kairos time versus Kronos time to use. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I love to talk about Kairos time. Kairos time is like when the oranges on the trees are ripe for the picking and you can just pull an apple off of that you know, off of that fruit tree and just sink your, you know, wipe it off, sink your teeth into it. And it is perfect. You know, it's just crisp and beautiful. Yeah. yeah Kairos time. Mm. Well, so, I mean, you've, you've hinted at this, but what, what's the most important key for you right now? Just for you personally, what do you think it is? Patience, which I would put under there, receptivity, um, stillness, um, surrender. They all kind of fall into that same category. Um, release. And it's part of, you know, it's the, some, I love dichotomies. I think dichotomies are fascinating and there's the dichotomy of the future. So we're talking about future stuff. The dichotomy of the future is that you do need to have an ima- image. You need to imagine what you want out of the future, but you must release expectations. And so that's where I'm at. I'm imagining what I want. I want and, and, and I call it life planning as life authoring. It's similar to Jordan Peterson's self-authoring stuff. And is you begin with the end point or a pick a fixed point and you work and you say, what do I want my life to look like? And, and give yourself permission to dream, of course. And then you then you go all the way back to, all right, well, what about my current behavior and my current systems and my current thinking? Those are the big three would prevent me from having that. Now, it doesn't mean I'm going to get it. Um, everything that's amazing in my life and priceless in my life, I had no idea what it was going to look like. It's kind of like when you don't really know what your baby's going to look like until you see her or him. That's there's a lot of things in life like that. Yeah, I have no idea. I I, I know something's coming. I have no idea what it looks like, but I know I'm going to love it, and it's going to also be exhausting at times. <laughs> <laughs> Patience, receptivity, stillness, surrender. I love that in relationship to knowing uh, ADHD. Yeah. I don't find ADHD, you know, to be very um, patient no, <laughs> and sometimes not very receptive and not very, so I think it's beautiful. That's I mean, again, that's that paradox, right? That those things can really work together though. Yes. Uh, yeah. And I think, you know, I go back to the, the higher self, lower self stuff, um, that if you have ADHD, you have it on anywhere on the spectrum. If you're down at the low end of the lower self spectrum and, and shame and fear, and so you still have ADHD, it's just, it makes you super freaking dangerous mm. because, you know, you are, it, 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 that's where narcissism comes from. It, not, it, not all ADHD, ADHD isn't narcissistic unto itself, but it's similar to this darker side of ADHD but the cool thing is, is you have it in your upper self, higher self too. And you just get a, it, it, it turns ideas into action. It makes you very organized, but comfortable with disorder in the sense of like being okay to be uncomfortable. It makes you, you know, you're a multi-thinker, you're, you're, you're paying attention, which I think is a huge part of kind of working from the higher self because paying attention is evidence of presence. Um, and, and so I'm, I'm learning to, again, to integrate back to that, where it's the word of the year of integrate ADHD and recognize like when I'm tired and that's sm- my small animal inside of me that is, you know, the, the raccoon, as I call it is tired that 
my ADHD tendencies towards a bit of paranoia or hypervigilance and all that, they kick in, but now I observe it. Like, oh, I see you. You're fine. Everything's fine. Mm. All right. Last question I like to ask is uh, if you could, if you could drop one key, like for the world, like for whoever listens to this henceforth and for now, forever, whatever, what, what would that key be? Well, I think <laughs> I'd be to be Zen about it, but I think the key I would drop for the world is find your key. You know, we, uh, we're in, we're individuals first before we're a group. And yes, we need to be respectful of the group. And, and, but we are individuals first. We are sovereign beings. Um, we are the only creatures on this planet that can witness our own evolution. Um, we are the only creatures on this planet that have existential crises. But conversely, we are the only animals that can choose our thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. And so whatever that key is, I would maybe modify even to say, find the key to your higher self, whatever that is. It's different for everybody. And if you're going to do that, everything you think is real will shift. Um, all the stuff that's true, the gold will stay. It'll be purified, but it'll stay. It doesn't go away. Um, you're going to have to change your systems. You know, our systems are in service to our beliefs consciously or unconsciously. And so if you have this key to your higher self, the systems you created very likely were created for the lower self. That's what the social conditioning is, especially in American culture. So you have to let that shit go. Um, and I think Eleanor Roosevelt said it is you'll need to learn to speak the truth, even if your voice shakes. Because one of the things you get when you open the door to the higher self is you have that periphery that is part of your job is to share that with the world. Um, don't hide that under a bushel. To quote the founder of my faith and the greatest brander of all time. <laughs> yeah, find, find your key to your higher self. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Well, I'm really excited to go back and, and listen to our conversation because, you know, I always do that and then I'll develop some, something that I'll talk about um, after that. But uh, this has really been, this has really been fun. I've, I've, I've generative, as I said, before we got on, like I knew this was going to be a generative conversation. There's been a yeah. lot generated and, and a lot of seeds planted. And I think a lot of keys dropped around if, for those who are able to see them or feel them or sense them. So if you want to, if you want to connect with Justin, you can find him on LinkedIn. Um, J-U-S-T-I-N-F-O-S-T-E-R is how you spell his first and last name. He is on uh, also on Instagram under Foster Thinking. So F-O-S-T-E-R Thinking. And I really love how you how you took that and and have run with it. You can uh, always find me at joelmorgan.com or at joelmorgancc on Facebook and Instagram. And I'm Joel Robert Morgan on LinkedIn. So Justin, thank you so much for being my volume 20 dropping keys co-conspirator. Thank you, Joel. Thanks for the great questions. Um, you're good at this. Well, I, I, I very much appreciate that feedback because I know that it comes with directness and honesty because you have said so. So I really appreciate that. And so now I'm going to leave us all with this. May the sage drop the key to unlock the cage in which you find yourself. Until next time, everybody. <laughs>